this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Hey everybody, I'm Pastor Alex and welcome to church. Uh, This summer, I had the opportunity to go to Colorado. How many of you guys have been to Colorado before? Um, How many of you have gone to Colorado with a group of high school athletes? That's what I got to do. So I traveled with the Staley High School cross-country team, and for five days and four nights, we got to train at the good old altitude. We were sucking air up there. It was a trip. We ran on trails. We were on mountains. We ran in open spaces. We had a great time, and uh, it was really good for the athletes. They had an opportunity not only to train, but also to have just kind of that connection, that bond that you get when you kind of travel with people. The only problem that I had was that I'm no longer 16, and as the uh, required supervisor for safety who had to join them on their runs, um, you know, the first run of the day wasn't bad. We'd get up before breakfast, and we'd go run, and we'd come back, and we'd get some breakfast, and then, you know, I would be done for the day, but no, no, no. We would go sightseeing, and then uh, have lunch, and then we would have an afternoon run, and then uh, we would do the whole thing the next day, and then again the next day, and then my body was like, what are you doing to me? And so I was doing every trick I knew how. I had a Theragun back in the hotel room. I'm massaging these legs out. I'm like using any tricks I know how to make sure that I can survive. And while I'm sitting in this hotel room, I'm sharing the room with one of our other coaches. He is just channel surfing because he too is in a lot of pain. And so we are uh, just kind of chilling, trying to recover. And during this trip, I was introduced to a TV show that I had only heard about before, but I had never watched. And I don't think I would have stopped on the channel, except I did not have control of the remote, and I was too sore to do anything about it. And so I began to watch a TV show that was on A&E. It's a reality TV show called Hoarders. I can tell some of you have already seen the show. It's not new by any means. It's been out for a long time. Uh, Some of you I even see like squirming in your seats because you're remembering maybe what you saw in that show. If you don't know what the show's about, here's the write-up from their website. Hoarders, the Emmy-nominated and Critics' Choice Television Award-winning series, tackles some of the most extreme and most challenging hordes in North America. Each two-hour episode focuses on someone struggling with hoarding tendencies as they work with experts, friends, and family in a race against the clock to help them clean up their homes and reclaim balance in their lives. If you haven't seen it, don't watch it. (laughs) You'll never be the same. it was, it was really interesting to me because as I was watching the show, it's the first time I'd watched a show and actually began to feel anxiety rising in me. Uh, I don't know, in your home, who's the clean freak? That would be me. And these people, they seem so normal at the beginning of the show. They sit there in a chair, and you get to meet them, and, and it's nice. They're in the studio. And then the cameras follow them back into their home. And once you see what's on the other side of that front door, your jaw drops. And you just are like, how can these people live like this? They don't want to throw anything away. They have stacks. Some of these 
Places had tunnels in order to get to where they were at. They have children that live in the home, and, and the kids are just laying on true garbage. There's bags of chips and drinks and things. Uh, one, one of the houses I, I saw had um, the guy had lost his wife, and, and he didn't want to do anything, and so he developed an affinity for, for mice. And so he had thousands of mice that lived in his house, and so he would come and feed them every morning. And... And, um, and he never cleaned it, so, you know, what mice produced was everywhere. And, and so you watch this, and your stomach turns, and you're like, what is going on in our world, and why am I watching this? Like, that was the worst part. Like, why are we on this station? Let's go to something else. But I learned a couple things watching that show. Number one, I learned I never want to watch another episode ever. No interest. So if you have, like, your favorite, don't send it to me. I will not watch that YouTube video. But more importantly, here's what I learned, is that everyone has a relationship with things. Everyone, even you and I, have a relationship with our possessions, the things that we own. And in this show, of course, these people have an, maybe an unhealthy relationship with things, and maybe because of some traumatic event in their life, they've just kind of allowed themselves to go to this place in which they can't get rid of things. They have to hang on to them for whatever reason. And if you've ever been married before, then you've learned firsthand that not everyone has the same relationship with possessions as you do. Um, And in the same way, the thing that allows us to get possessions oftentimes is money, and we all have a relationship with money. When I do marriage counseling, I often walk couples through an exercise that kind of helps reveal their attitude about money. And normally, husbands and wives don't see money the same way. Uh, Typically, as we get down at the end of this exercise, people will tend to see money as status. That's one way people see money. It gives them importance. It gives them value. When I have money, it gives me status. I have a better sense of myself. Other people see money more as security. It's not that they want to spend it, but the fact that they have it makes them feel safe. It makes them feel secure. It makes them feel okay about themselves. Other people see money as enjoyment. Money is just something that we exchange for something we want more of. Uh, all the spenders in the room are like, yes, let's do more of that. Enjoyment, that's what we want for money. Um, other people see money as control, uh, where I feel more powerful when I have money because I have a sense that I can control my own destiny. I can make choices and decisions about where I live and what I drive and what I wear and what I eat, and I have a sense of control in my life when I have money. And so all of us have a different relationship when it comes to money, but we all have a relationship there. And for better or worse, your past, your life experiences have shaped what your relationship currently looks like when it comes to your opinion and attitude about money. So let me ask you a question. I want you to be honest because we're in church. Uh, not good to lie in church. Not good to lie outside of church. But um, how many of you, by a show of hands, would say that your life might be a little bit easier or a little bit better if you had more money? Anybody? If you had a little bit more money, yeah. Yeah. Life would be a little bit easier. Well, I've got news for you as a church. We want your life to be better. So before church, I took a $100 bill, and I taped it under one of the seats in this room. I don't know why nobody's looking. 
It's because you all know I'm a tightwad, and I really <laughs> did not do that. But it would have been so awesome if I did, wouldn't it? Like, you'd been like, yes, $100. Uh, yeah, I didn't do it. But, but it's the thought that counts, right? It's the thought that, that's what I've heard. I want that to be so true. So today, here's what we're doing. We're continuing the series that says the Bible doesn't say that. And I want us to look at one of the most commonly misquoted verses in the Bible. Uh, So many people say this. They say that money is the root of all evil. Problem is, is that money is the root of all evil. That's not in the Bible. It's actually uh, a take off of what 1 Timothy 6.10 says. And we're going to look at it together. Let's put it up here. Here's what the Bible actually says. It says, for the what? Oh, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. If you're like most people, uh, you're probably looking at this and like, man, this is good. This message isn't going to be for me because I don't love money. This verse is talking about some other rich, greedy person who loves money. But listen, that's not me. I don't love money. But, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want us to ask ourselves a question. How can we know if we love money? Like, how can we discern where our heart is when it comes to our finances? Can we even discern whether we love it or not? And so I think it's a great question, and I love that the Bible answers that question. Oh, you're like, what? It does? It so does. In the Old Testament, there was this king, King Solomon. He had more riches than anybody else. And in a book that he wrote called Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10, he almost provides for us a definition of what it means to love money. Here's what he says. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Some of you are like, is that really in the Bible? Yes, the Bible really does say that. Whoever loves money, they never have enough. They always want just a little bit more. Those who love wealth are never satisfied with their income. Just a little bit more would make me happier. A little bit more would give me more security. A little bit more would allow me to do the things that I would really like to do. And I think that sometimes questions have the ability to reveal our heart. So here's some questions for you to ask yourself. How much do I need to be happy? How much money do I need to be happy? How much money do I need to be satisfied in life? How much money do I need to feel secure And if you're thinking about more money than you currently have, then the answer for you is that I need a little bit more. Then Solomon's words might ring true for you because whoever loves money, they'd never have enough. They always want just a little bit more. Yikes. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And maybe, just maybe, if you're brutally honest with yourself, and I am too, I may love money more than I want to admit, more than I want to put on. So let's look again at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and put our verse of the day in context, all right? We're going to back up uh, 1 Timothy 6.10. That's where our verse is, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. But verse 6, we're going to back up and put it in context. It says this, it says, but godliness with, what's that next word? Contentment. Contentment, that's great gain. I think as we start this passage, we got to realize that 
Paul, who's writing to Timothy, who's a younger believer, who's a church leader, he's saying, listen, here's the focus. We want godliness. Everybody get that? We want godliness over everything else. That's the most important thing. But godliness, when it's combined with contentment, oh, that's, that's great gain. Verse 7 says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. What's that old saying? You've never seen a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul before. I don't know who came up with that, but it was not my generation. But there you go. Uh, it's true. Whatever you came into the world with, you, 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 you're, not, you're not taking it out of here. Uh, I heard an old joke, and it was, it was not a good joke. Uh, there's this old man, and he had this money. And so he put all of his money in this bag, and he put it up in the attic. And his wife was like, why are you putting that bag of money in the attic? He said, it's because when I die and I go to heaven, I can grab it on my way. And then, of course, he died, and she went upstairs and saw the bag of money there, and she said, I told him he should have put it in the basement. That way he could have grabbed it. It's a, it's a, it's a bad joke, but... For, for, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Verse 8 says, but, but if we have food and we have clothing, we will be content with that. Some of you are like, I don't know about this guy writing this. Just food and clothing? Like, how much food? How, how much clothing? Like, is he really cool with just food and clothing? Like, if he has a happy meal and he's clothed, that's enough? He's content? Does he need two pairs of shoes? Does he need socks for those shoes? Doesn't he need an iPhone in his pocket? I mean, really, just food and clothing? I think all of us have a little bit of a challenge to get our mind even wrapped around that. But Paul's saying we brought nothing into this world. We're going to take nothing out. We need to recognize that if we have our basic needs met, then we should be content with that because, oh yeah, godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 9 continues. It says this, those who want to what? Those who want to get rich ah, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then there's our verse that we started with. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. As we read these verses, I don't know if you have anyone you personally know that you've seen do just that. But I know for me, I have a friend who told me, he said, Alex, I'm going to make so much money, and I'm going to be the biggest giver in the church. I'm going to help missions happen around the world. I'm going to help ministry happen. I'm going to be so good. So he went to college, got his business degree, got a job, started making lots of money, and uh, he hasn't been in the church for close to 20 years. Is it wrong to have money? It's not wrong to have money. Is it wrong to love money? Yeah. We have to be careful that our heart does not move from having to loving. Jesus warns us even about this in Matthew 6, 24. He says, you cannot serve both God 
and money. It's interesting. He could have said anything. You can't serve both God and your wife. He didn't say that. You can't serve both God and your lust. He didn't say that. What did he say? He said you cannot serve both God and money. There's something about money throughout all of time that will continue to be the number one competitor for our heart. And it will be the very thing that distracts us from having the true riches that God wants to give us. Our relationship with money is so important that God speaks about it so often. It's one of those things that we have to get right if we want to have a full, content life here on earth. In the church world, there's two extremes that have been taught when it comes to money. Um, Some of you may have heard of these. Some of you, these may be new information. Uh, The first one is what's known as the prosperity gospel. How many of you guys have heard of the prosperity gospel? Man, it's a good message, isn't it? I I so want it to be true. Uh, The prosperity gospel, also known as the word of faith or the health and wealth gospel, it believes this. It it says that if, if I'm godly and if I have enough faith, And if I give enough, if I do all that I'm supposed to, then God pretty much has to make me rich, and he has to keep me healthy. If I follow all the rules, check all the boxes, the floodgates of heaven are going to rain down on me exactly what I want. Uh, The prosperity gospel boldly proclaims that God will give you your heart's desire, money in the bank, a healthy body, a thriving family, and boundless happiness. It guarantees that faith will always make a way for you. If you just believe, and if you leap, you will land on your feet. If you believe, you will be healed. Those who have embraced the prosperity gospel but haven't seen the payoff at the other end, they checked all the boxes, but they're like, what's going on? Oftentimes feel like I must not be a very good Christian because if I was, then God would have But the Bible doesn't say that if you check all the boxes that you will have prosperity defined by your own terms. The Bible doesn't say that money is a root of all evil, but it also doesn't say that obedience always leads to financial blessing. On the other side, so we on one extreme, we've got the prosperity gospel. You're going to be healthy and wealthy and happy. Like, cool. On the other side is what we might call the poverty gospel. Where if I'm following God over here, then God's going to rain down his blessings. If I'm following God over here, then I'm going to be poor. I'm going to have nothing. And if I have possessions, it probably means that there's something still ungodly in me. And I need to rid myself of all possessions and all wealth. And I need to take a vow of poverty because to own things and possess things would be unrighteous and ungodly. Two extremes. Extremes that I don't want either, I don't want you to embrace either of them, right? These extremes are not virtues or measurements of our spirituality. It's not a sin to have something, it's a sin to love money and things. And Jesus said this in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin. <laughs> oh, I like that translation. <laughs> How often do you get to say that? vermin. They destroy. And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven. Where moth and vermin. They do not destroy. Good news, there's no vermin in heaven. And where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the the crazy thing right here, this last verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. Where our treasure is, which oftentimes is where our money is, has a way of revealing where our heart really is. For where your treasure is, where your money, that's where your heart will also be. So I want us to jump back to 1 Timothy 6. Verse 10 was where we spent most of our time, right, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of sin. But if we fast forward seven verses and come to verse 17, we read this. It says that, command those who are rich. All right, so Paul's encouraging Timothy, who's this leader of this church, hey, command those who are rich. Um, And before we go any further, I want you to know that you are rich. If we look at your life, not compared to maybe the people who are around you, but on a global scale, you're rich. Um, If you own one of these, you have hundreds of dollars worth of technology that you just put in your pocket and carry around, you're rich. You're wealthy. Do you know that for much of the population of the world, this is over a year's worth of wages to be able to pay for this thing? And you upgrade. And it still worked. Because i got to have manure better. It's got a better camera, you know. It's, it's, it's a little bit faster. We are rich. Uh, I, I heard it said that if you own a vehicle, that puts you in the top 9% of the wealthiest people in the world today. You're rich. You may not realize it, but you are blessed beyond measure that other people in the world have no idea how you even can live like this. So command those who are rich. Okay, so there's a command. It's coming for us. So want to make sure you guys are in the loop. This isn't for those people that aren't in here. This is for us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, said everybody who's invested before. But... Not to put our hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God. Why? Oh, he richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's easy to start putting our trust in money instead of God, but we need to remember that money promises what only God can provide. When you believe money is the answer to your problem, I hate to tell you, but you're deceived. No, my life would be better. It would be fixed. My problems would go away if I just had more money. That's not the truth. The truth of the matter is, is that money is not the answer to your deepest need. Only Jesus can meet your deepest need. More money's not going to help your kids stay off of drugs. More money's not going to cure your best friend's cancer. More money's not going to give you a better marriage. More money's not going to provide any sense of security and fulfillment. You guys have all heard the stories about people who win the lottery. They had no money. They won the lottery. It lasted five years, and then they're broke again. It didn't fix anything. They got all the money they wanted, all the money they could dream of, and it didn't satisfy because money promises what only God can provide. So as the verse says, it says, don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God. And verse 18 goes on to say, command them, those rich people, us, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, 
and to be generous and willing to share. (laughs) It's not wrong to have money. It's wrong to love money. It is not sinful to be wealthy, but it is sinful to be greedy. So do you live a life of entitlement, getting what you deserve, or do you live a life of generosity, giving to others and blessing them? Sometimes I think giving and generosity is less about the money and more about the state of our heart. Do we sacrifice self for the sake of others? Do I withhold what I could get for me so I can bless others? Or do I sacrifice the sake of others in order to bless myself? I think that we've all prayed and asked God, If you would just bless me, God, I I need you. I I want your blessings. But honestly, heart check, when's the last time that you prayed and asked God to help you be the blesser in someone else's life? Oh, never? Something's wrong with our heart. Instead of just asking and wanting God to give you things, what if God wants to use you to be a giver to others? Hmm, that'd be radical. It sounds like something Jesus would do. That's what we need to shift our heart toward. We all have a relationship with money. It's been shaped by our life experiences, but God wants to show us a better way. Verse 19, as we finish this up, it says that in this way, you know, as you uh, do good, Um, As you're rich in good deeds, as you're generous and willing to share, in this way, what are you going to do? You're going to lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. We read the verse that Jesus said that you can't store up treasure on earth because remember the vermin, they're coming, right? But he said store up treasure in heaven. How do we do that? We do it right here. We do this by commanding them to be good, rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. In this way, you're going to lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. How cool is this? So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We talked about this last week. Jesus showed up and he says, I've come to give them life and life more abundantly. And I said, I think the greatest challenge he had was helping people realize they weren't living. Because every one of us thinks, no, I got a life. I'm living. What are you talking about, Jesus? Offering me life. No, no, no. We have a form of life. But, but when we do this, we may take hold of the life that is truly life. I think so many of us think that we're living and we're just, we're missing it. We're like the walking dead, feeling like we have life, and it's good, but it doesn't look good, and it's not empowered by God's spirit and how he moves. Man, what if we embraced real life? It would be radical. It'd be life-changing. It would not only change you, but it would change the people around you. Think about what we could do as a community. Think about what we could do as a nation. Think about what we could do in the world if we allowed our attitude towards money to change, our attitude towards life, and we laid our life down, we laid our desires, our entitlement down, and we said, God, I'm just all in. I'm going to put my hope, my faith, my trust in you. Whatever you say, let's go. That's what we're all called to. It's not just for like, oh, the religious elite or that pastor or that professional Christian. No, no, this is what God wants for all of us. So let me ask, do you worship money or do you worship with your money. 
There's definitely a difference. Let's talk just for a minute about giving, right? We're talk, let's talk about being generous. Because if I worship money, then I want to hang on to it because I want to protect it because it's all about me. But if I can worship with my money, then I can honor God with what I do and how I steward and manage what he's already blessed me with. Um, a lot of us, um, if you've grown up in church, have heard of this word, the tithe. Anybody heard tithe? You don't hear it outside of the church. You only hear it inside the church. Uh, tithe means 10%. means one-tenth. Okay? So the idea was, in the Old Testament, that you would have people who would bring the tithe. They would maybe have had a harvest. They would have been a farmer, and they would have taken one-tenth of their produce, one-tenth of their harvest, and they would have brought it to the tabernacle. They brought it to the house of God in order to bring it as a act of obedience and say, God, I trust you. And the cool thing in how God set this up is that the people of God fund the ministry of God. So everybody brought the tenth, it came into the storehouse, then the ministry was able to continue. All right, it's a really cool thing. So now we fast forward, we get into the New Testament, and all these people are like, yeah, I don't know. Um, should we still do what the Old Testament said? And we have this debate inside the church of like, is the tithe really still biblical? Like, is that what we're supposed to do? Let's do this. You guys got a Bible? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. This isn't even in the notes, but it's so good, you're going to get it. I wasn't going to go here, but we're going to go here. Matthew chapter 5, we find that Jesus is doing his longest uh, discourse. It's the longest uh, recorded uh, talk that Jesus did. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And inside of this, he starts doing some things that uh, were kind of, you know, shocking for the Jewish culture that he was speaking to. And some, some of the questions come about the law. It comes about what all these rules were that God had provided to Moses uh, in the Torah or the Tanakh. And so, uh, you know, they're like, hey, are you trying to, like, uproot that? Are you getting rid of that? What are you doing, you know? And so uh, he starts saying some stuff that starts to challenge them. So verse 21, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, it says, You've heard that our ancestors were told, right, in the old law, what Moses said, that you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, if somebody commits murder, I think, yeah, there's judgment. That's, that's, that's should, that should happen. But, but Jesus does something here. He says, but I say to you, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. Some of you are like, uh, I don't hope Jesus rides in the car with me. Because <laughs> there were a few of them on the road the other day. It says, and if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Well, this is a pretty strong language. The Old Testament says, hey, if you murder somebody, you're going to have judgment. Okay, I can make sure I don't murder somebody. Jesus says, hey, listen, that was just the law. That's a checkbox. That's fine. But here's the heart of the law. You shouldn't even be angry with other people. You shouldn't even, like, call them an idiot. Really? Jesus, that seems kind of extreme. Like, that's a little much. If you would have just heard what they said to me, you would know that my response was justified. He says, no, you're missing it. Your heart needs to not be one of anger. He took what was established in the law and he elevated it. Is it harder or easier to not commit murder versus don't be angry with your neighbor? Okay, not committing murder, that's easy. 
Not being angry at others, that's harder. Old Testament, easier. New Testament, harder. Okay, Jesus goes on in here. He says in verse 27, he says, hey, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Don't go have sex with people who aren't your spouse. Okay, don't go do that. But he says, listen, I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, that's no good. I didn't go sleep with that person, but I thought, I wanted, I desired. I got onto that website. I, oh, mm. Old Testament, don't commit adultery. Oh, that's easy compared to don't commit adultery in your heart. Jesus elevated it. Somehow or another, this idea of Jesus actually making things a bit more challenging because in the New Testament, we do have God's Holy Spirit who's going to empower us, who's going to cause us to be a new person, which they didn't necessarily have in the Old Testament. We're going to be made into a new creation. He's going to change our desires. He's going to make us a new person. It's really awesome. But somehow or another, when it comes to money and it comes to tithing, people are like, oh, no, that's just an Old Testament thing. God only expected 10% back there. Why would you think that God all of a sudden says, ah, forget it? He never makes it easier. It's easy to give 10% and check the box. Fast forward into the New Testament, and God may uh, ask you, as he did one couple in the early church, to sell what they had and to take the proceeds and to give it to the church. And they were like, yeah, we're going to do that. And then when it came time, they made the deal, they made the transaction, they didn't bring all the money. They only brought some of it. And you know what happened to them? They died. Okay, I think I will go back to the Old Testament. I'll just give my 10%. What's this more than 10%? What is this I have to do what God kind of, I sense him calling me to do, and I can't cheat it? Yeah, 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 it's a bigger deal. So I believe, and some of you guys, this would be challenging or new for you. Yeah, you want to go and follow the law and not commit adultery and not uh, murder and tithe? That's great. God wants more for you. New Testament, I'm going to give always at least 11% because out of principle, it's more following Jesus than it was in the Old Testament. Anyway, just a side point. There's three levels of giving. You want to become a generous person? Okay, number one, the easiest way to start is just spontaneous giving. You don't give regularly. You don't give on a regular basis, but you, your heart's moved. You, you give spontaneously. We all need to do that, right? When a moment occurs and there's an opportunity to meet a need, we should all be willing to give spontaneously. That's the first level of giving. It's a good place to start. If you haven't given, man, choose to give. But what we want to mature to, what we want to move to, is beyond spontaneous giving into systematic giving. That I'm arranging my life in such a way as to be a generous person. Not just when my emotions call on me. No, I want to be a generous person all the time. So how can I live my life in such a way? Well, the Bible helps you take 10% of what you have and give. That's going to force you to be systematic. Well, I don't even know how much I make. What is my income? Well, figure it out. Look at your paycheck. Oh, I never do that. I just spend it. Well, stop. <laughs> God wants you to take care of what he's given you, right? And in fact, the process of actually having to figure out the 10% helps you know what the 90% is so you can better steward it. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I'm not just trying to pay God off. I'm trying to be a good steward of everything he's given me. 
and I want to worship him, and I want to be generous, and it's good for my heart to give and not just to hang on to. So I want to move beyond spontaneous giving. I'm going to do that every now and then. The missionary comes in town, or there's a convoy of hope, and they're going to go and meet a natural disaster that's occurred. That's good. We want to give spontaneously. But we also want to give systematically, that I know what I'm giving, and I'm giving it regularly, and I'm creating a space in my life to be generous. Now, there's a third level most of us never get to. And the third level is sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving means that I'm saying no to something I want in order to take that money and apply it somewhere else. It's a whole nother level and a whole nother sermon. But the people of God fund the work of God. I want to leave you with three points and, uh, and I hope that you'll go to a regroup and have fun talking about money. Three points. Number one, Anything other than Jesus will never satisfy me. I just want you to know that. Anything other than Jesus is never really going to satisfy you. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.10, we read this earlier in the New Living Translation. It reads this way. It says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Gosh. So what good is wealth? Except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. Solomon goes on at the end of that book to say this, that the last and final word is this. Hey, fear God. Do what he tells you. And that's it. Number two, greed leads to the worship of things. You become very materialistic. Got to have more. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Did you know that there's sinful earthly things lurking? There's vermin out there, and there's things lurking inside of you. Have nothing to do, here's the sinful things lurking inside of you, with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Greed leads to the worship of things. And number three, and I couldn't figure out how to phrase it any better than this, so bear with me. Discontentment can make the richest of us poor. And contentment can make the poorest of us rich. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 Paul is speaking again. This is him towards the end of his life. He'd already written to Timothy. This is another letter he's writing to a church at Philippi, and he says this. He says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Remember, this is the guy that was content with food and clothing. Yeah, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And then here comes one of the most misquoted verses ever, but we got it in context. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. As a runner, I used to write it on my shoes. Yeah. I can do everything through Christ. I'm going to win this race. He's going to strengthen me to do what I want. That's not what this verse is talking about at all. 
This verse is saying, you don't think you can be content with nothing? Yeah, you can. For I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Oh. I think back to those shoes and how many races I lost. I think God was giving me the strength to, to deal with it, to, to, to make it through. <laughs> Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, final verse. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, that's a good thing, New Life Community Church. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights, fix your eyes on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. If you guys would, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as followers of Jesus to get this right, to get this relationship we have with money right, and this relationship that we have with you right. As we reflect here in prayer, I know that there are many of you that you're going to open up your hearts and you're going to let this truth get in and you're going to be different. And I just want to ask one question, and I hope that this is true of every person in this room, and it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not. I hope that you can say this universally, but how many of you want to recognize that, you know, we really are blessed? And not only am I blessed, but I want to be even more generous and make a difference in this world. If, if that's you and you say, yeah, I want to I have a greater awareness of my blessings and I want to be generous and make a difference in this world, would you just raise your hand right now? Father, I pray that at this holy moment that you would cause everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike, to look for opportunities to be generous. God, for those who are Jesus followers, I thank you that on this day there will be those who will, for the first time, take the step of faith and maybe worship you with a tithe. God, that they will recognize that 90% with your blessings is more than 100% without. And God, as an act of worship, can we recognize that everything comes from you? And God, it is a great joy to give back to you as an act of worship and obedience. The first 10% of what you've trusted us with. We thank you, God, and we look for the opportunities that you will open for us to be generous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.